Hey, welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project. Steve Shepard here. When we think of the word invention, or we think about inventors, our minds typically flash back to those sort of turn-of-the-century workshops, all kind of dark and industrial-looking, where single-minded scientists toil day after day, searching for the next great thing that would reinvent society. We think of people like Alexander Graham Bell with his telephone, Thomas Edison with his light bulb, Nikola Tesla with lightning bolts flashing all around him, and of course, Joseph Gaetti, perhaps the greatest inventor of all time. You know him, right? Today, as we wrestle with the coronavirus pandemic, his invention is in the news every single day. Gaetti invented toilet paper. But then I digress. Most of the people that we call inventors were going after some singular, laser-focused outcome. And that's where they directed most of their attention and energy. But sometimes things took a weird turn, and what they got was not what they were after. But truthfully, these weren't really failures. In fact, we're grateful for every one of those wrong turns and the people who took them. Let me share a few of them with you. I want to start with Alexander Fleming. When we first moved to Madrid when I was a teenager, we lived in an area of the city where a lot of the expatriates lived. There was a street there called Calle de Dr. Fleming, Dr. Fleming Street. It had lots of restaurants and bars that were all very good, but it was also the street where all of the, let's see, how do I say this diplomatically, ladies of the evening congregated. I'll come back to that in a minute. Fleming was a medical researcher who was trying to invent a wonder drug that would cure everything, but he failed, and in frustration, he gave up. But one day, he noticed that there was mold growing in one of his neglected Petri dishes. But he also noticed that all of the bacteria around the mold had died. And that's when penicillin was discovered. Now, you might remember that penicillin was the one thing back in the 50s and so on that was effective against sexually transmitted diseases. Well, this is why the prostitutes congregating on Dr. Fleming Street was so ironic. All right, let's move on. Let's stick with this medical track for just a moment and talk about John Pemberton, who was a pharmacist in Atlanta in the late 1800s. For reasons that have sort of been lost in the mists of time, he invented a tonic called Pemberton's French Wine Coca. It was made of wine and cocaine. He claimed it cured headaches and various nervous disorders. I mean, why wouldn't it? But in 1885, a few years after he began to market this elixir, Atlanta banned the sale of alcohol, which meant that he had to either stop selling his wine-based concoction, apparently cocaine was okay, or change the recipe. So he chose the latter, substituting carbonated water for the wine. He called it Coca-Cola. And then we have physicist Wilhelm Röntgen, who spent a lot of his time experimenting with cathode ray tubes, the tubes that, in a slightly different form, served as the display screen on early television sets. Anyway, one day he realized that the radiation from the tube that he was fiddling with was passing through the black cardboard that covered the front of the tube and making a chemical solution in a bottle on a nearby table glow. Apparently, it never occurred to him that this might be dangerous. Anyway, if it could penetrate cardboard, he figured it could penetrate other things, like flesh. He didn't know what to call this strange energy that was coming out of the tube. They didn't yet know what it was, so he called it X-radiation. You guessed it, the X-ray was born. Okay, let's shift gears again. 
I'd like to introduce you to Richard Jones, a naval engineer who, in 1943, was trying to design a meter that could monitor the power consumption on battleships. One of the springs he was working with fell on the ground, and rather than roll against the wall and stopped, it kept bouncing. Apparently, he had to chase it down to the next deck. Hello, Slinky. In 1955, Joseph and Noah McVicker were trying to make a wallpaper cleaner. Unfortunately, it didn't work, but fortunately, it found a home elsewhere. Rainbow Crafts bought it from them, and they began to market it as Play-Doh. More than 700 million pounds of it have been sold since then. Not bad for a failure. And then we have James Wright, who was an engineer at GE during World War II. In those days, there was no such thing as artificial rubber. It all came from the forests of Malaysia and Singapore and a few other areas where there were rubber tree plantations where they harvested latex. But supplies during the war were scarce, and since rubber was needed for things like airplane tires, motor seals, combat boots, and medical equipment, the search was on, in earnest, for an artificial, manufacturable rubber substitute. During one experiment, Wright stirred boric acid into silicon oil, and the result was a sticky, gooey mess that, while somewhat rubbery, just didn't have the right consistency that they needed, so it was abandoned. Until somebody decided it might be fun to play with. Silly putty. Okay, on to other happy accidents. Many of you will have heard this story, but it's a great one, so I'm going to tell it anyway. In 1968, Spencer Silver, working at Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, what we know as 3M, created a glue that wasn't very sticky. And, to make it worse, it wouldn't dry. So he set it aside in frustration and went on to other things. Years later, his colleague Art Fry found himself in a quandary. He sang in his church choir, and he marked the hymns he would sing with little pieces of paper so that he could turn to them quickly. But they kept falling out of the hymnal. If only there was a low-tack glue. Post-it notes. John Walker was a 19th-century British pharmacist who was using a wooden stick to stir a batch of chemicals for who knows what. When he finished... There was a blob of the mixture on the end of the stick, which he attempted to wipe off on the work table surface. It burst into flame. Matches. Next, we have Percy Spencer, an engineer with Raytheon in the 1940s. Every day, Spencer's wife packed him a lunch, which included a sandwich, an apple, and a chocolate bar. Every day, he'd eat the sandwich and the apple for lunch, but he'd save the candy bar for his afternoon break. One day, while walking through the lab on his way to coffee, he passed in front of a new vacuum tube that was being used in an experiment to create a new location-finding application called Radio Direction and Ranging, what we know today as radar. When he did it, day after day, the candy bar in his pocket would get very soft. Well, he finally figured out what was causing it, and to test his hypothesis, he held a handful of corn kernels in front of the beam. By the end of this experiment, Percy most likely glowed in the dark, but thanks to him the microwave oven was born. And then we have Dr. Harry Coover, who worked for Eastman Kodak Laboratories. He was trying to create a substance that could be molded into precision-grade military gun sights. But the stuff he created, cyanoacrylate, wouldn't mold, and it stuck to everything it touched. Well, he walked away from it. Six years later, working on another project, this time airplane canopies, he went back to the sticky stuff, but this time discovered that while it was a pain in the butt to work with, 
Because it stuck to everything, he also realized that not only did it stick to just about everything, it did so very strongly and without the application of any heat to catalyze the reaction. Sixteen years later, he received a patent for it, and superglue was born. And then there's good old Roy Plunkett. Roy was experimenting with chlorofluorocarbons back in the 1930s before CFCs were known to be nasty, horrible stuff. One morning, he pulled a container of gaseous CFC from a refrigeration chamber in his lab, and he found that the gas was gone. But there was a pile of little silvery flakes on the bottom of the jar. The gas had condensed, and the condensate was found to be an incredibly effective lubricant. And with that, Teflon entered the kitchen. Next, we journey into the oil fields with Robert Augustus Cheesebro, who found that the oil rig workers would regularly smear their hands with a byproduct of the production process because it healed cuts and burns and soothed dry skin. Hello, Vaseline. In the early 1960s, Alfred Fielding and Mark Chavan were trying to create a new innovative textured wallpaper for houses. It didn't sell, so they put their heads together and they thought about what they could use this new bubbly substance for instead. Initially, they thought it would be great to insulate greenhouses, but somewhere along the line, they realized that it was great for packaging fragile things for shipment. Today, we call it bubble wrap. Okay, to end this episode, I'd like to focus on a few accidental food inventions. I begin with Ruth Wakefield, who in 1930 was trying to make a batch of chocolate cookies. But after mixing up the batter, she discovered to her dismay that she was out of baker's chocolate. So instead, she broke sweet chocolate, which she did have, into tiny little pieces and scattered them into the batter, fully expecting that these little bits would melt and be evenly distributed throughout the batter. They didn't, and chocolate chip cookies arrived. Thank you, Ruth. And how about George Crumb? George was a chef at the Carrie Moon Lake House in Sarasota Springs, New York. Now, I have this vision of dirty dancing in my head. Anyway, George had a customer in the restaurant who kept sending his French fries back because they weren't crispy enough. Finally, out of frustration and spite, he sliced the potatoes super thin and he fried them until they were rock hard. The guy loved them and potato chips were born. Next, we have John and Will Kellogg. And yes, it's that Kellogg. In 1898, they were boiling a pot of grain to make granola. And they somehow forgot about it. But don't ask. Anyway, the stuff that came out of the pot was dry and moldy. But when they scraped off the mold, they found that the grains had dried into flat little flakes. Now, why they scraped off the mold rather than just throw it in the trash, I don't want to know. But they did. And the next thing you know, we have cornflakes. And then there's Constantine Fallberg, a researcher at Johns Hopkins in the late 1800s. Fallberg was trying to discover new uses for coal tar, a dark, sticky substance that's a byproduct of coke and coil production from coal. It's kind of nasty stuff. Anyway, one day he noticed that the biscuits his wife had baked tasted really sweet, much sweeter than normal. Well, one thing led to another, and he discovered that the sweetness came not from the recipe, but from the coal tar residue that was still on his hands. It turns out that coal tar is 700 times sweeter than sugar. Not that anybody would ever eat it, of course, but we do. It's called saccharin. And finally, 
We end this episode with Frank Epperson. When Frank was 11 years old, he was sitting on his family's back porch in San Francisco, mixing a powdered drink mix into a cup of water with a stick. When he went inside a few minutes later, he forgot about the cup, and he left it outside for the night, where it froze. When he found it the next day, he discovered that he had a sweet icicle on a stick. Jokingly, he called it his Epsicle, and he began to make them for his friends. And then, when he had his own kids, they called them Pops sickles, which of course became popsicles. He patented it in 1923 when he was 29 years old. Now, rather than end this episode with popsicles, let me make a couple of observations about failing. Thomas Edison's teachers told his parents that he was too stupid to learn anything. He was fired from his first two jobs for being non-productive, and when he finally got around to being an inventor, He made a thousand unsuccessful attempts to invent the light bulb. Let me say that in a slightly different way. He created 1,000 failed prototypes before he got it right. Once he did, a reporter asked him an interesting question. How did it feel to fail a thousand times? Edison countered with an equally interesting response. I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. Thomas Watson, the former CEO of IBM, once observed that the fastest way to succeed is to double your failure rate. I love that. But I think my favorite observation about failure actually comes from Google. Committed to innovation and forward motion, Google has a culture that actually encourages failure. Why? Because of this. They believe that if they don't give their people permission to fail, then they don't give their people permission to try. And if your people are afraid to try because they'll be punished for failing, the result is an organization that's mired in its own status quo. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned here. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.